Hey, this is Daniel Fairbanks from Soul Food 76. You're listening to my chapter as the story grows. Welcome to the next chapter of As the Story Grows. I'm Brian Patton. Thanks for listening. This week, we welcome Daniel Fairbanks from Soul Food 76. Soul Food 76 is just about to release original soundtrack on vinyl via Old Bear Records and Light in the Attic. Daniel also worked at Tooth & Nail Records and Metro One, so he has some fun stories from those days and a secret recording project with Frank Lenz and Richard Swift that has yet to be released. So, I hope you guys enjoy this week's dive into Soul Food 76 with Daniel Fairbanks. Oh, come on. It's California, and I just poured myself a cup of coffee. I'm ready to go. I'm uh, sitting in my beautiful backyard looking at my little tiny house that i got to work on tonight and um, thought I'd get this interview in. <laughs> That's awesome. Are you born and raised in California? Uh, no, Seattle, actually. That's where we uh, made all the, all the awesome music back in the day. That's that's awesome. You have none of the like California chill, or I don't know if Seattle has a vibe other than rainy and depressed. That's all I hear. So that's why I don't live in California. Or that's why I don't live in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> You're too happy for that. <laughs> I don't know. I moved back twice, and the like the after you just get out of the rain and you go back, you just I don't know. I can't I can't do it anymore. Yeah. I gotta be I gotta be near the water. It's gotta be sunny out. You know, just, uh, yeah, no offense, Seattle, but you're way too depressing for me. (laughs) Where are you located? I'm in Philadelphia. I don't know if I've ever been to Philadelphia. No? I don't think so. No touring ever brought you this way? I don't know. Name some towns in Philadelphia. I mean, wait. <laughs> Besides Philadelphia, what what else? What other towns are? What what state are you in? I don't even know. <laughs> Pet, Pennsylvania, but yeah, but Pittsburgh or I don't know, Lancaster. Or, uh, I don't know what else. Where else you would have gone in Pennsylvania? We've done a bunch of stuff in Pittsburgh, and I mean, uh, I don't know. Where's the Hershey? You know that? Yeah, yeah, Hershey, yeah. Yeah, we did a concert there, and we were driving in our giant school bus on the old soul food tour, and (laughs) it was, like, insanely hot, right? (laughs) So we got to this venue, and I just totally remember how hot it was, and we went in 
to this like converted, you know, venue, church, whatever. It was like an old, like a uh, ice cream parlor or something like that. But there was like a bar and um, they were serving up like cold drinks and it was air conditioned in there. And yeah, I remember it was amazing. Is that what you're in right now? You're in that heat? Yeah, I'm, yeah, not not quite as hot as I'm sure it was at that time, but yeah, similar. It will be tomorrow, yeah. Sweet, man. What do you want to talk about? Let's throw way back what was growing up in Seattle like. Yeah, so let's see. So Seattle was, you know, definitely my coming of age place. Uh, I think my first, like, real concert was at a club, and I was 20. I was under 20, 21, so I had to, like, sit in the back, and um, I just remember a lot of, like, goth music and, you know, um, yeah, just the era was was awesome when we were growing up. It was, you know, like, music was pretty accessible. Getting a concert was accessible playing places, bunch of friends, you know, easy to get a band together. Um, yeah. I don't know, Seattle was going on, you know, it's like Nirvana and Soundgarden and, you know, all these grunge bands and, yeah, just like every night there was like shows going on. And, um, I think uh, it was... Literally, like every weekend or every other weekend, we had concerts, either small house shows or or bigger shows or whatever. And then we, you know, started pulling uh, Portland into the mix too. Lots of stuff going on down in Portland. Um, yeah, I mean, it was super fun back then. Yeah, I don't know how old you are, so yeah, I figured like that Seattle scene was pretty big at one point what was the moment that like got you into music got you hooked on music uh so you know i used to play drums and then i'd been i played in a bunch of different bands and i got to the point where i was like you know what i really want to like i want to be a, like the front man <laughs> and so the only thing i was good at was playing the drums you know i I had no problem getting in a band, but I just, I didn't know how to sing. I definitely didn't know how to play guitar. Um, so, I, you know, I'd already kind of established myself as, as a musician, but I didn't really have any chops to be like front runner, singer guy or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, I kind of connected with uh, a friend of mine from Portland Sam Erickson, and he was in different bands down in Portland, and he ended up moving up to Seattle, and I was, I played him some tapes, cassette, of course, and um, he was just like, yeah, let's, let's, um, let's see what we can come up with, and we, uh, we actually had him in another band when I was playing the drums, but we actually kicked him out, because <laughs> he wasn't very good. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> So, my guitar player at the time for this band, Gloria, we, he's like, yeah, just, he's too mellow. He's just, he just doesn't have, like, the excitement, you know, or anything, and passion. But he became really a friend, you know, so 
kind of like that's what started our whole soul food journey was uh, me and him, you know, be, just putting some together. And all it really takes is one extra person to uh, believe in yourself or whatever, you know, like believe you can do it. That's yeah. kind of what um, that's kind of what me and him had, um, and then you know we just started grabbing other players that shared our vision. Yeah, so that's that's kind of where we started. You know, that's where my music intro was. You know, just yeah, garage garage banding it. Yeah, what made you uh, start playing drums? Uh, my gosh, I was playing drums at like twelve. Yeah. So I'm I'm like 51 right now, <laughs> which is like I feel like I'm so crazy old. Um, I think uh, I would have to say Kiss. <laughs> Kiss was like the band when I was growing up, and I was like super into like Kiss and the Kiss drummer Peter Chris was had this just massive killer drum set. So I will. Re- I, for Christmas, I wanted a drum set, and you know, I had a little three piece, four piece drum set with a cymbal. That was it. But you know, it was uh, it definitely wasn't uh, the Kiss drum set, but that's kind of got me into drumming. I just thought it was fun and cool, and I wanted to be like Peter Chris. Yeah. You you said you started playing drums and in bands in high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like a couple buddies down the street were playing music. They lost a drummer, and I'm like 12 years old, and these guys are like 15, 16, and they're like playing like Judas Priest and Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and, you know, classic rock stuff. And they needed a drummer, so I like went down the street and tried out for them and I literally was only playing for six months, and um, just because I really wanted it, they totally let me play for, with them for a while. Um, <laughs> it was yeah, it was super fun. You know, you back then you would just put like headphones on and you'd um, get a cassette player, and you couldn't do a record player because if you're playing next to a record player, the records would start skipping, you know, because you're playing the drums. Yeah. So you couldn't do a record player. You had to do a cassette player with, like, really long headphones and <laughs> turn it up turn it up really loud, and you'd play the music, yeah. That's it. No, yeah, I, rem- I remember learning to play drums, like, yeah, by, like, yeah, my Walkman, putting CDs in the Walkman with my headphones, like, turned all the way up and, like, playing along with, Metallica and MXPX or whatever and like learn to play drums that way so <laughs> very similar situation I will say I have a drum set now um, I, I have a well, I have eight I have a there you go I have eight kids um, two of them are from Ethiopia and I'm not going to like stereotype anything here but my little guy from Ethiopia is like the master drummer like he just sits down he just hits it He's like 11. He's got like killer beats. He just, um, he knows how to, you know, play along. It's pretty amazing. My oldest son and, and, um, and I'll, we'll sit in 
my oldest will play bass, so I'll play guitar, and, you know, we'll switch off and stuff. But, yeah, it's pretty awesome. My little 12-year-old, 11-year-old is, like, rocking it on the drum set. That's awesome. I shouldn't be, like... I don't know why hearing like eight kids is shocking because I'm the oldest of eight siblings. So it's like not oh, really? outside the realm of normalcy. So yeah. <laughs> Yo, you, so you get it, man. You get it, man. Oh, yeah, family. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, that's lots, awesome. of in, lots of internal drama in the family, but man, I wouldn't oh, yeah. trade it for anything. Yep. So, I know. I only, I came from like two people. My, I have a sister and that's it. But, so I got a big family now. Yeah, yeah, it's like my dad was, he was one of ten, but my wife is like an only child, so, yeah. So he introduced her to, like, our large family. Yeah, she's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to think twice about this. <laughs> right. But she loves you. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's stuck now, so. <laughs> So when you started uh, Soul Food, you wanted to be the front man. What led to that that sound of kind of a, a funk, disco, alt-rock merger? Yeah, I think um, I have to say, like, Lenny Kravitz was a big deal back then. Um, I really liked uh, this band called Brand New Heavies. Uh, let's see. There was, there was kind of this, uh, you know, like... I don't know, Funkadelic, and I got, we got really into, like, kind of some soul music, Sly and the Family Stone. It just resonated with the guitar player and me, um, and then my bass player got super into, like, jazz, kind of the acid jazz movement, and uh, my drummer, Paul, he just, only thing he ever played was, like, Nick Drake, <laughs> so he was, like, this... Um, he was like the art, the artsy guy in the band. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just got really into this black exploitation kind of Superfly, Curtis Mayfield kind of stuff. Discovering that style of music, and um, we just tried to make our mix of it. Honestly, it was kind of a little bit of a joke, like or. Um, we just never took ourselves like serious. We we're just like, this is really fun music. You can't take it serious. You know, we weren't like a grunge band at yeah. all where, you know, where it's all, you know, teenage angst and all that kind of stuff that was going on. We were just kind of, a, you know, found just some fun in music. Um, and just didn't take ourselves seriously, you know, and that kind of backfired on us when we started getting into the industry, you know, and then record companies are like really wanting us to, you know, put on an amazing show. We're just like, no, dude, it's, it's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> our our, our uh, guitars are out of tune or whatever, but. Um, you are not alone. 
Yeah, I know, right? I mean, in <laughs> Seattle, it was like, uh, you know, kind of the Kurt Cobain culture was sloppy, um, just just go with it, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect kind of thing. Um, that just worked for us, you know. There was other bands that were really serious about music, like they would go and see music stores and pick out the right kind of strings and, you know, just get all nerdy and stuff, but that was definitely not us. Yeah. Yeah, not, not one of us in the band was like a nerdy musician. We would just show up and just see what see what happens some some nights were amazing and some nights were just horrible you know so we yeah. just had to do had to do the energy i guess <laughs> yeah in in those early days were you going for a faith element in your music and were you aware of like this christian scene yeah um so it, my band that i was playing drums in we used to play in bars a lot or clubs in Seattle, and we made some great connections there, and I just thought that that's the way you do it. You you play in clubs, and, you know, hopefully you'll get, like, a festival gig maybe someday or something. Um, so we started out playing, like, our first show was at a, this place called the Central Tavern, which was a re- really popular um place in Seattle and that was like our first first concert and I broke like two strings and it was horrible and all this stuff and I just thought that's the way it goes you know but I, I just loved it and it was fun and um, we ended up getting some Christian friends that would come out and play or you know see us from our youth group thing um, and kind of eventually our youth pastor guy invited us to play at his youth group thing. And this is where we met, like, Paul Blue and Jeremy Enoch, Damian Gerardo. All these other people were kind of hanging out at this youth group. And uh, we started this, like, concert venue thing on Fridays there. So we ended up mm-hmm. playing at this youth group church thing. And a lot of, like, people that weren't Christian were showing up and, it was just kind of, you know, mosh fest craziness and whatnot. There wasn't, like, this big, like, get everybody saved agenda. It was kind of just for music. Um, you know, and then I eventually started, like, sharing my faith from stage. And, you know, we bounced back and forth be- between regular clubs and, and Christian kind of venue thing. But then, honestly... The faith church movement, Christian music scene, started getting really big. I actually got a job at Tooth and Nail, doing record covers, and um, yeah, so there just became this like massive industry, and we're just like, wow, this is we're becoming like famous, you know, in this thing. But then we go play a, a tavern, and there's like four people there or something. We're just like. I think we're going to start just playing these churches where, like, you know, 300 people show up. So, mm-hmm. honestly, you know, it was kind of a no-brainer, you know, like, hey, let's just start playing churches and, um, you know, for, forget these taverns they're laying. <laughs> so I'm not saying that's right or wrong or whatever, but it just felt like, you know, it was 
was kind of easier. Yeah, it made sense at the time, yeah. Yeah, how long were you at Tooth and Nail? <laughs> I worked there um, probably about two years, and then um, the owner of Tooth and Nail, I won't mention his name, <laughs> but... Uh, Everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> he came in the office a couple times, and I would, like... I was a graphic artist. I did, like, you know, Supertones record, MXPX. I did a bunch of covers and all this stuff back in the early days. And he would come in, and I'd be, like, had all this, like, soul food stuff. Um, I was sending out merch from his office. <laughs> and so he got really he got really upset and um, eventually fired me because I, I was, like, making my to-the-nail office into a Sulfur Central, as he put it. <laughs> so I love that guy. We're friends now and everything. And it's no hard feelings, but it was pretty funny. He's like, what is this? Sulfur Central? <laughs> and he, um, yeah, so he fired me. So I was there for like two years. That's that's funny. Was there ever any talk about you releasing Soul Food on Tooth and Nail? I tried to get him to release something, and I'm like, will you release that band? I'm like, come on, you did that Daniel Sun band. Those guys are horrible. Why can't you release <laughs> Why can't you do a soul food? And uh, he just, I don't know, he just never, he didn't like us, honestly. Oh, so he just never, uh, never happened. And, uh, you know, I was okay with that because, you know, we um, went with this company called Malico, which was in the South. And, you know, they were like a kind of a black gospel label with a, with a Christian label on the side. And, um, that was more our vibe, anyways. Kind of, it was fun being on a Black Gospel label. <laughs> yeah, I think their like imprint, like Christian rock imprint, was Freedom. I was gonna ask if that had like any Canadian uh, basis because they released records from The Cry and Hocus Pick. Like, do you know if that was like Canadian based or? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question because I, I I don't know why they got in on the. Hocus Pick and Cry. We actually toured with both of those bands. Did the, we did like all of Canada with the Hocus Pick guys. That was super fun. Um, yeah, a lot of donuts. <laughs> Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons, yeah, there yeah. you go. Thanks, man. <laughs> that's that's awesome. How'd you get hooked up with uh, Malico slash Freedom? Um... Oh, I know what it was. There was a lady um, who was in Tennessee, and she was working for a, a com company called Brentwood or something like that. Okay. It was like they were kind of uh, like jars of clay, and they were kind of a big, yeah. big label. And she was a friend of ours from Seattle, and uh, she was totally going to give us a record deal, you know, and all this stuff. And then... Um, she she used to take us out to these like killer dinners, right? We were just totally getting, you know, minus the wine, we were getting, you know, wined and dined with her. <laughs> and then uh then she ends up moving back to Nashville Nashville or something and she just kinda of dropped us but told us about this guy Dave Ash, who works for Freedom, who worked for Malico and um she kind of, I think she convinced him to like sign us, and he was, he was reluctant, but he was, he went for it. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I haven't even thought about that for so long.
your, your big record just based off you had a video for uh, Huggy Bear was was the original soundtrack record. Um, what was that a big record for you? I know I saw that music video back in the day, but I. I never know what the response is outside of like, oh, I saw that video and I like that song. Like, what was the market like for Soul Food 76? Uh, supposedly we sold like 16,000 records of original okay. soundtrack. Um, and I'll tell you that we were popular everywhere except for California. <laughs> <laughs> It was just so funny. We'd be going on these tours, and there'd be, like, mass people. We played, like, Creation Fest in front of, like, I don't know. There must have been, you know, 10,000 people. We did Cornerstone. You know, um, I'm probably totally exaggerating, but, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> we played all the stuff, and then any time we got in California, we got, like, gigs. We got gigs with, like, the Supertones. Nobody cared at all, and, like, no one had ever heard of us. It was just like we were just a total opener and, um, you know, no excitement. So I just realized that, you know, we're just never going to play California again. <laughs> oh, man. You know, like MXPX, they would come to California and just, like, fill, like, you know, thousands of people. And, you know, this is back in the day before they were really big. But, yeah, yeah. thousands of people would show up. You know, we'd play a show. And unless we were playing with, like, Supertones or something, there was just, like, nobody would show up. So um, our market was definitely the South, um, Midwest, Seattle, Portland. Um, did some stuff in New York and um, that area. Pennsylvania, of course. Yeah, was there ever a bitterness in like, oh man, had we put our record out on Tooth and Nail, X, Y, and Z might have happened, or was it always just like, did that ever, never cross your mind? Well, yeah, it was like that, um, you know, that chocolate um, sundae that's sitting in front of you and your mouth's watering, and you're like, oh man, I so want that. Um, I just so wanted to be on Tooth and Nail, and then I started working there, and I was like, man, I'm glad I'm not on Tooth and Nail. <laughs> Just, I mean, it was just like there was um, there was an excitement for people that were on to the nail, and you kind of had a slam dunk kind of market. Like, oh, it's on to yeah. the nail, so people will buy the record even though they don't maybe know who it is or anything like that. Um, so they had their cult following kind of thing, and um. Yeah, you know, it's like my friends in Port Lou, they you know, they weren't on tooth and nail, they were on something else. Right. Um, they were fine with it. And they were all you know, everybody was friends with, you know, Brandon and Bill Power and all the people that worked there. We are all like part of the Seattle scene, so everybody hung out together. We just I don't know. Just wasn't our thing, I guess. Plus he didn't like us, so that would never happen. <laughs> right. Actually, I played in a band with with Bill Power for a long time. He was like the second man of To the Nail. Yeah, he was in the band that I was playing drums in. He was a guitar player, and he got kicked out too because he wasn't good enough. <laughs> so, what's my? What was that band? That band was called Gloria. We were like a U two oh, style okay. thing way back when. What led to Soul Food hanging it up? 
Hanging it up. Um, yeah. So, our, I'm going to blame uh, Jeremy Enix from Sunny Day Real Estate on this. So, okay. <laughs> our drummer, Paul, he was playing with Aaron Sprinkle and some of his side projects, and he started playing with Jeremy Enix, and the whole frog queen thing was going on, and... Um, he started, you know, getting in a real tour bus and going on real, real, a real tour, and um, so it's kind of funny. So Jeremy came from Sunny Day Real Estate, who the drummer for Sunny Day was turned out to be the drummer of the Foo Fighters. Yeah. So because of because of the Nirvana collapse and you know Foo Fighters, you know, starting up. Um, Jeremy lost his drummer, Will, to Foo Fighters, and then Paul kind of became the, the, you know, the second drummer guy. And so we ended up having these shows where Paul just stopped showing up, and um, oh, man. we had to get like, yeah, we so we had to get like substitute drummers, and he was kind of like a really backbone of our band, you know, even though it was like. Sam and I's vision for soul food and you know my Paul was kind of more of a Nick Drake kind of person he didn't really like yeah. soul food that much <laughs> it was kind of funny <laughs> um oh bad but he just he was a part of, he was you know he was fully in when we were doing like original soundtrack I mean he was he had some great ideas with you know songs and all that so he was like a fully committed and the bass player, Kevin, was, like, one of his really close buddies. And our friend, too. But so, anyway, long story short, he started playing a lot with Jeremy. And so we eventually came to a crossroads. And he's like, well, I think I'm just going to, you know, go play with Jeremy and that kind of thing. And, and Aaron Sprinkle. And um, so we ended up getting, like, a new drummer and a bass player. And it just wasn't the same, you know. Like, we did our last record at Muscle Shoals, which that studio was amazing. But um, it just didn't have the same push. So you just you just kind of know when something's coming to a close. And that's, yeah, yeah. that's what happened. It's, you, yeah. Lose, you lose a couple members, and, yeah, you're just, the, the magic is just not there anymore. Yeah. We also were married, you know, a bunch of us just got married and our our families were starting to take a toll on our whole rock star dream thing. So reality sets in, you, you leave for like two months and you come home with like $500. <laughs> I got to make a living here. So that's where uh, I just started focusing on uh, um, design and web development and all that kind of stuff. But. Jeff from Squad Five O a few weeks ago said, "Yeah, bands break up. That's just what they do." <laughs> I was saying, do you remember the band uh, Ninety Pound Wuss? Yeah, he used to work at Tooth and Nail too. We would ride the bus together. I love that guy. He just, I just, I have to tell you a story about him. We're taking the bus one time, and he's like limping, right? And I was like, "Dude, what's wrong with your leg?" He's like, "Yeah, I just donated a bunch of bone marrow because I'm pretty. <laughs> we're like." Me and my wife don't have any money right now. <laughs> so oh, he went man. in and he donated a bunch of bone marrow and got like three hundred bucks. <laughs> oh man! But he was like, he was like seriously sore for like six weeks. 
that guy was like legitimately yeah. punk rock. I mean, punk to the yeah. to the core. Oh, I love that guy. Did you do any uh, musical projects after Soul Food? Or did you just get into web development? Well, I started this like um, kind of country, alternative country thing. I got big into like vinyl, and then I started getting into like really old school country. You know, Hank and Johnny Cash and just a bunch of older stuff. And I, I recorded like six six songs. Um, and then when I moved to, I eventually moved to California for, you know, a web design job, record company thing with uh, this lady, Crystal Lewis, who was like a singer, big singer back then. Were you at Metro One? I was, yes. Oh, nice. So I did like pretty much every cover that you've probably seen has my name on it. Um, okay. So anyway, she started this band with this guy, Richard Swift, or we called him Dickie Ochoa back then. Do you remember Richard Swift? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love Richard. Yeah, yeah so he was with this other guy named Frank Lenz, and they like had a little studio thing, and they said, hey, I gave him a couple hundred bucks, and we recorded three songs, and um, those guys played on my record, and that was probably my best thing I did back then in California. Um, the mix wasn't very good, and there's no way I can get the music back, but, you know, I got the idea. But, you know, and then when Richard Swift passed, it was crazy. I would listen to that song, and he's, like, all over it, you know, his voice yeah. and his style of producing and all that. And, man, I just, like, I loved that that was like a really exciting moment for recording for me. And then, and then I, you know, I just never did anything with it. So that was my side project, but I didn't have my Sam, you know, I didn't have my guitar player that would make it so I could pull it off. Yeah. And then I had, and then I had four kids too. And you know, my wife was just not down with it. <laughs> right. So, so did you do that just under your own name? Uh, that was called Western Starlight. Yeah, I never put it out or anything. Gotcha. Nobody can find it. Nope. I should put it up on Spotify, but maybe, I don't know. Yeah, Bandcamp. Yeah. Or Bandcamp. Yeah, I have a Bandcamp. I should. I should put that up. You tell me to do it, and I'll do it. All right, do it, man. <laughs> I download it. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Swift and Frank Lenz on the drums. I mean, dude, it was some good stuff. You can get yeah. past my uh, vibrato voice. You're about to re-release, you can pre-order now, original soundtrack on vinyl. How did you guys get hooked up with uh, Light in the Attic? Uh, yeah, the old bear guys started hitting me up 
couple mu- couple months back, Chris and Anthony. Um, I was just like, yeah, whatever. These are probably some guys that live with their mom in the basement <laughs> or something. <laughs> and then you know, I saw them or their Instagram, and I kind of looked them up, and you know, I was like, okay, they're legit. And, um, I just. Uh, it just came together super easy, you know, and I, I was, I mean, honest, okay, so to back up a little bit, when we did a real original soundtrack, we were trying to convince Freedom Records, Malico, to put out a, uh, a double, you know, record, or basically the record that has the flap on the side, you know, it's like a lot of yeah. records back in the day would, so you could open it up and you'd have this full thing and, um, we wanted to give a to have a black light poster included in the <laughs> in the <laughs> record. So I had like the soul food guy. I had all this like killer like artwork already designed, and it was just crazy expensive back then. So they were just like, "No, we're just going to do CDs, and we'll do a couple cassettes." You know, and I was like, "Dang it!" So we had a full vinyl already kind of in the works but it was kind of a you know vinyl was like oh my gosh you don't want to do vinyl because you know cds are worth that now and um so for me like when chris and anthony approached me i was like oh my gosh i've always wanted a vinyl of original soundtrack so maybe selfish or not i don't know but i just was like, man, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do the artwork. I'll get you guys all hooked up. All I want is 10 records. You don't have to pay me any money. <laughs> I just want 10 records. And they're just like, sold. Let's do this. So that's how it came together. Does it feel like a, a second chance to get people to hear this record who might have missed it the first time around? Does it feel like there might be more excitement this time around? Man, I don't know. I mean, my uh, poor blue buddies are like pumping out vinyl. Um, yeah. People are excited about that, so, um, yeah, it was kind of funny. I, I did one of their records. Well, actually, I think I did two of their records, and, you know, Aaron Sprinkle recorded our, he produced our record, and um, yeah. we just have a strong connection with those guys, and, you know, I did artwork for them. And, um, I just feel like there was a part of that era that was, um, maybe like pure, you know, like we just were out. We just loved Jesus. We wanted people to hear about it and we just went for it, you know, and it, um, there wasn't like a commercial aspect of it. You know, we were excited. I never, you know, I got like $47 of royalty, you know, one check. So it wasn't like there was no money in it at all. Just t- selling T-shirts and maybe getting paid to do a concert, but um, it was uh, it definitely was you know a time that there was some really fun stuff coming out and people were pretty serious you know serious about their faith and serious about you know expressing it through music. So, you know, and getting rich or being commercial wasn't a, wasn't really a factor back then. It was just like, go for it until it ends, you know, and that's what we did. <laughs> so, 
So yeah, I'm excited, man. man. I, I hope I hope people you know will be inspired by it. I just I still listen to that record. I played it for my kids, and um, you know, I it's, it's it's like a piece of art that you look at and you're like you're still kind of proud of. I'm not saying it's like the best thing ever, but it's just that one record. I know the other ones I don't really like as much, but that one record <laughs> soundtrack I was like pretty proud of. So. If people want to join in on it, man, that's that's awesome. Yeah, I listened back again today, and, like, it's been, I mean, over 10, 15 years since I listened to it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this record's got some, like, you forget how rocking it is at the beginning, and that it's not just this soul funk thing. Like, it's got that, like, grunge alternative element at the beginning. You're like, oh, yeah, this record still slams. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, it just it does feel like Seattle, you know, when I hear it. I know yeah. we weren't trying to we weren't trying to be a grunge band at all or anything like that, but I mean, you just couldn't deny what was going on in Seattle and how it did. You know, moved into that that record. Thanks for listening to As the Story Grows. Our theme song was written and composed by the legendary Bob Nana. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes and give the show a rating and review. If you'd like to support the show financially, click on the Patreon link at asthestorygrows.com. If you enjoyed this episode, share it on social media with your friends. Much appreciated, and thanks for listening. I'm